This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Vincent Loy, partner, financial crime, and cyber leader from PricewaterhouseCoopers. We discuss the trends in cybersecurity, financial crime, and anti-money laundering across Asia-Pacific and the implications of technology in fintech. Vincent shared his thoughts on how companies should think about cybersecurity in different perspectives of people, technology, and governance. Hi, Vincent. Hi, good afternoon. How are you doing? Brilliant, thank you very much. Thank you for hosting me during lunchtime in PwC office today. It's difficult to get you on the show. Talking to Vincent Lloyd, partner, financial crime and cyber leader from PricewaterhouseCooper, but he's also a thought leader on the subject of cybersecurity in the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you for that. I hope I can contribute a little bit. Yes, Vincent. I wanted to get to know you better. How did you start your career? How did I start my career? Interesting. I actually graduated from the local university doing accountancy and I joined Coopers and Library at the time for one year. And then after that, I was selected very luckily to go over to London to do chartered accountancy. And I spent the next 21 years in London. In between, I spent a few years in New York. Originally started as a financial auditor, but when I was sent over to London, I was asked to be doing IT audit. And then from IT audit, I transitioned because I got to know the business process. I also got to know the technology. And, and lucky for me, because opportunity arises, which required me to translate the business process and with the technology. And from there, I understand the technology. And then being a risk person, I get to know the risk. And from there, I became a risk expert. And then with technology being so advanced in financial services sector, Gradually, I get to know more about cybersecurity, technology risk, and, and I, I'm quite interested in that, and I research a lot about it. So I became an expert from then on. And then after that, you, as a consultant, you have actually advised uh, the Interpol, Western governments, till now in Asia. Yes, yes. Mm. I, I mean, I'm quite lucky as well, because I think a lot of time you, you learn something, and but you got the opportunity to actually use them. And as you use them, you become better at it. And in my case, I work in New York. I work with most of the biggest US-based international bank and help them to understand technology risk. And one of them is cyber. And then gradually, I went over to UK. When I was back in UK, I advised the regulator in regards to how to manage systemic risk within the financial services sector. Fortunately or unfortunately, cyber is one of the most important things in regards to systemic risk impact on the financial services sector. And then I work very closely with a number of government in this region, and they have actually used me and either as a consultant, or in fact, the one who actually helped them to implement a number of things, or actually helped them to think about how to manage cyber risk within the context of this interconnected world. Through your career from it being from London to US, back in Asia, any interesting career lessons that you can share? Oh, a lot. But one thing I learned is that there's two sides to everything. You'll never believe what you read unless you know exactly what happened. And why I say that, because I've been involved in almost a lot of major investigation or major incident, either as an investigator or the one who helped the organization to fix a problem. And a lot of time, what you read in newspaper is not even close to what actually happened. 
Secondly, is that people is your assets and I always believe that um, diverse people actually give you different views and they are very important because they stretch your thinking but at the same time initially they make you extremely uncomfortable but that is a strength and that is something that we have to cherish. Thirdly, is that you do not know what you do not know. There's always more to know and it's always good to hear from another person's view and read more because there will always be things that you do not know and, and that's the same that goes for cybersecurity. Which is the main topic of our conversation today which we're going to talk about cybersecurity, yeah. a bit of financial crime and anti-money laundering in Asia-Pacific. And yeah. I want to start off with a basic understanding and that will also help my audience in understanding this topic. How do you define security in both the physical and the digital world today? I think that both of them comes on the basis that you have something to protect. And that means that in this case, and that's why we are talking about crown jewel or your key assets. It, why we are talking about security is because there's something to protect. In a physical world, you talk about physical property to protect. In a digital world, we are talking about digital assets. And as long as you're very clear about that, that's how you actually, and you can see how you build up security around them. And a lot of times, people do not know what they are protecting. As a result, they don't do it in a very comprehensive and a diligent way. Can you talk about financial crime and anti-money laundering in general? And why is it important for financial services to rethink about this? There are interconnectivity between financial crime and cyber. The reason is that a lot of activities in cyber actually involve, at the end of the day, financial money. And how people want to monetize the money is actually using anti-money laundering or money laundering methods. So that in the first place, normally they will start off with a crime. And a lot of time in the digital world, they're used by digital to collect a crime. And once they've done the crime, they have to use this money, digital money, do in the normal industry or economy. To do that, they use, need to use money laundering technique to wash the money such that they bring it to the economy. And that's how the interrelation comes in. And of course, it's, it's become more complicated because of the way the accelerating nature of technology is going exponentially. For example, today we have things like the blockchain and Bitcoin. Yeah, I think the complication is that on one hand is that we are getting more interconnected. And this interconnectivity cannot underestimate it because it's not only about interconnectivity, it's about connecting to people that you do not know and connecting to places that you don't even know they exist. And that is very powerful because a lot of time, traditionally, we get connected only to people we know. Now the world has changed. We are connected to people that we do not know, even we do not know exist. And that actually has a huge implication that I don't think we think through very carefully in terms of social and political. But also at the same time is that the other thing is that the criminal are getting smarter. So as a result, the criminal knows that actually to, do, to make a lot of money, they don't need to be physically there. They can be using remotely or using interconnectivity to commit this crime. Also at the same time, the criminal are getting smarter in terms of they know, even if they do not know how to use the technology or know nothing about digital, they can actually buy this capability in the dark web or somewhere that they don't even need to know how to do it. And thirdly is that I call this industrialization of cybersecurity criminal, which means that the criminal are becoming an industry by itself. 
which means that criminals are no more lone ranger, lone wolf. They actually work together as a group and it becomes like an industry. So they even have researcher, they have chief marketing officer, they even have CEO and like a running like a factory. And that becomes a challenge for big organizations because they are in the open and they are in the dark. So if I may ask, what are the key challenges for large organizations in dealing with cybersecurity? Oh, there, there are many folks. To put it simply is that the challenges is that traditional organizations are latent with legacy systems. Even right now, the system that we have, they don't build in security. So as a result, security is an afterthought. And there are a lot of systems that the company knows that they use. There are also a lot of systems that the company uses that they do not know it exists. And that's where the problem comes in. And intrinsically, they have vulnerability, and there are so many vulnerabilities that you can attack. And just imagine the criminal only need to get it right once. The company needs to know every single asset, every vulnerability, every single different areas or angle that they can be attacked. It's almost an impossible task, exactly. And also at the same time is that the criminal, a lot of countries are looking at cybersecurity as a national asset as well. And increasingly, nation states are also getting involved in cybersecurity. And what is even more interesting is that nation states are also working with criminals to do cybersecurity. So it becomes a very blurred world. And last but not least, I think that in the legal aspect, there is a study done by Interpol apparently that of all the cybersecurity incidents that are reported to the police, and we are talking a very small percentage of cybersecurity incidents actually get reported to the police. And those that are reported to the police internationally, only 0.66% of those are being caught and also are put to jail. Which you, you convert it back, which means that in order to do a cyber attack, your success of not getting convicted is in a 99% confidence level. That's a very interesting statistic. But then most of these organizations usually make some common mistakes. For example, the most well-known is the Sony and the Target yeah. hack. And recently, there is the DDoS attack yeah. on all the Western Internet websites. But what are the common mistakes that these people usually do? I don't know whether you call it communistic, but I think it's awareness of things that they have not done. And I suspect that to deal with cyber, we probably will take, a, um, maybe I'm a pessimist, we will probably take a generation to sort out cybersecurity. Because it is not something that's innate with us. And there is also a conflict between convenience and also security. Just like putting seatbelt in your car. I grew up in a, in a generation that don't have seat belt. And even now when I sit in a car, I feel very uncomfortable putting a seat belt. It's not natural. But then if you look at my son or my kid, when they sit in the car, the first thing they do is putting a seat belt. So that's one. Secondly is that what are the things that I see that are not being done? Or Okay, one is that actually cybersecurity is no different from security. It's still about having the right access for the right person. A lot of company, and it has been going on for a long time, even before cybersecurity comes in, they do not have good access control. Every company that I deal with has some issue in terms of access control. That means that who have access to this particular system or document or any asset, that sort of thing. So that's one. Secondly, is that we focus a lot on increasingly what we realize is that we focus a lot on technology solutions. Unfortunately, technology solution only help you to solve yesterday problem. And cyber is a tomorrow issue. The version of cyber malware 
of today is a better version of yesterday. So as a result, people also need to put the right governance structure in place. And I don't think that a lot of organizations have good governance structure in regards to cyber. That means that who is ultimately responsible for cyber? What is the board view in regard to cyber risk appetite? And what are type of investment they are going to put in in cyber? And also at the same time is that they take processes as a given, but actually having a processes, a robust process to deal with cyber is extremely important. The reason is that when you deal with unpredictable events, you go back to the standard operating procedure. If your standard operating procedure is not robust, then you're not able to deal with unpredictable events. What are the top five security incidents that Asian companies need to take note of then okay. when it comes to dealing with this type of I think the top five cyber incident event, the first one is maybe I talk about malware is one. Malware in terms of ransomware. You look at statistically, ransomware is actually very, very common in Asia. Also in the rest of the world, we're talking about, in fact, I do know that a lot of government knows that this has been underreported. The reason why it has been underreported is that the criminals are so smart that whenever they lock your computer, they don't ask you for a minute because they know that you wouldn't have a lot of minute. They probably will ask you for 1,000, 2,000. You, as a victim, especially for a company, you consider, you weigh the difference. Do I give them a, mil- a thousand and get my system unlocked immediately? Or do I go to the police, report to them, and not very sure that my, the police will do anything or will do it quickly and wait for my system to be unlocked. And that takes a few days, a weeks, a month, and that operationally will be unbearable for company. That is one. Secondly is that business email fraud is another one where actually people have lost their email and those emails are being taken by criminal. And then this criminal will use your email to send it to people familiar within the company to ask for transfer or payment or confidential information. Of course, you don't hear a lot about it because there's a reputational risk involved. The third area I think that we can see increasingly in Asia is because Asia has a very high density or much more advanced in regards to Internet of Things. And as a result, this Internet of Things, there is the other problem with Internet of Things is that they will use as a sort of as a weapon for denial of service. Okay, which is the third common thing that I see. And the fourth area is malware, which is very common. The problem with malware is that a lot of time the malware is through by spam email, email that is sent to you, but not a generic email, a very customized email to make sure that you can open the email or you want to open the email. As a result, once you click into that, the malware will sit inside your system and wait for unpatched solution before they start infecting your your system. What are the first steps for companies to actually take on to put the security? Because not all big companies started off being big. They probably started off somewhere small. And I think that there is a usual practice of not putting compliance and security so early into the process. And then when they graduated into becoming a big company, then they have these problems. Where's the first step? Okay. It's a very good question because I get asked a lot because dealing with cyber is very difficult. But one of the things I learned is that the company that have done very well in cyber are not necessarily the company that paid more or has spent most. One, I think you need to have the right people, which means that you have to appoint the right CISO. 
and he has to be supported by the board in terms of making decisions and the board has to have visibility or the management need to have visibility supporting him in regards to those decisions. Secondly is that you need to have, that's the governance part. Secondly, you need to have the right policy and procedure and this policy and procedure needs to be communicated in a very effective way to the staff and also at the same time make the staff practice those simple things. And thirdly, I see it as that not making cybersecurity as a compliant exercise. The moment you make it compliance, it's not going to work. What you want is actually making people aware of it and making decisions. And also making sure that people can go and ask if they are not sure about the decision-making process. And that go back to policy, procedure, communication. And also, fourthly, buy intelligent tool. And whatever tool you buy, make use of it to the fullness. What I realized in Asia, now that I've spent the last two years in Asia, a lot of companies buy a lot of tools. They don't use the tool to the maximum. There are a lot of tools that have security features, but a lot of people don't either switch on the security feature because it doesn't help them in their work or they can't be bothered or they didn't know anything about it. And fourthly, is monitoring and communicating within one another. For example, okay, one thing that we're not very good in industry is a big problem in information sharing. Even within a company, I don't think there's enough information sharing about spend that you receive, email that weird email that you receive. So as a result, if everybody receive all this email, wouldn't it be great if you actually pass it to somebody centrally so that somebody can see all this in totality before they make decisions? That comes to my next question. Does Asian culture or business practices towards cybersecurity differ from their Western counterparts? Or maybe the more general question is, are uh, the ways how you treat cybersecurity in organizations is dependent on cultures or attitudes or business practices? I think I've had the privilege of working in the US, living in London for a long time, and also working in Singapore for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And I think the big difference in Asia, okay, I'm not saying I'm being generic here because every country has their own issue. But I think that some of the more stronger nuances is that I think that we are very infatuated with tooling. I think Singapore companies buy a lot of advanced tools and maybe overbought it. They don't focus enough in terms of the processes because a lot of time people look at processes as a piece of document or bureaucracy. And secondly is that we treat, we don't treat risk with respect, we treat risk as a compliance exercise. Risk is a decision-making process. Compliance is a checkbook exercise. We sometimes confuse both of them and a lot of time we don't think about risk as a proactive activities, we treat risk as a compliance activities. And unfortunately, when you deal with cyber, which is unpredictable, so it changes every single day. It is very difficult to put compliance checklists on it. And thirdly, I don't think we are also not, um, but to be fair, that's the same for Europe, but I don't think we don't share with one another. In, I think that in, in Asia, we are quite siloed in terms of our mentality, in terms of what we do. And we don't share because we tend to be quite... We, we just don't have a habit of sharing with one another because maybe you worry that if you share, 
you might shame one another, that sort of thing, right. reputationally. So that is tr- those are the three big things that I think are mm. missing in Asia, or, le- or less than in Europe. So if really everybody has the tools but they don't use it or they don't have the knowledge of using it, how should organisations set themselves up? Is it more in terms of social practice or other things that you could do? I think one is that I, I personally think that the board or the management needs to do a better job in terms of asking the right question. And I think that unfortunately we have not in Asia, we don't have a lot of board members who are technologically savvy enough to ask the right question. And that's one. And secondly is that I think that sometimes we need to make sure that you give equal focus to the process and the people part of it and also the governance part. And in fact, if I challenge our organization, break up your IT security budget into people process technology and see how much you spend in all of them. I can bet most organizations will spend a big, big proportion on tooling. But if tooling is going to solve your problem, then world is an easier world. But I don't think so. And that will be a good judgment. Given the new wave of startups in fintech and insurtech, which actually skirt around what we call the regulatory tax because the monetary authority actually put a lot of compliance on top of it. I mean, how does large companies that's actually stacked with so much compliance cope with these onslaught of the companies? I mean, you talk about taking the checkbox, but that's part of their compliance. How do yeah. they do that? I think that that's the, I, th- I think this is a million dollar question that all financial services are, are dealing with. You are dealing with fintech which is not very regulated mm. and a lot of time and being a mentor to some of the fintech organization, very, being very involved in startup bootcamp and all the different startups, I, I realized that control is not one of the things they think about. They are thinking about cash flow, runway, that sort of thing. As a result, they have a legs up against the bank. But having said that, Singapore is slightly different because the fintech actually work together with the financial services incumbent. So as a result, they will be sucked into this confined environment. But I think globally, if you think about it, they are slightly different in the rest of the world. The fintech is actually not completely working in collaboration with the financial services. But having said that, they have not reached a stage where they make a lot of difference to the financial services sector. And as a result, the regulator have actually come up with rules and regulation. But mm. I think that this is something that the regulator are grappling with because it's that once they make it big, they are so big that you don't even know how to control them because they are everywhere. What about the trends currently for financial crime prevention and anti-money laundering in Asia-Pacific? What are the trends you see? I think the trends is um, there's a lot of data analytics, big data. Have I seen anyone that is so fabulous? Not really. I've seen a lot of machine learning, big data. I've heard a lot about it. It's about behavior, using data analytics, okay, merging them together to come up with something. Have I seen a lot that's so impressive? I've seen quite a lot that are good, but I wouldn't call them impressive. I don't think we've reached a stage yet where data analysis can totally combine with cyber and also uh, financial crime. Mm. I think we will reach there. It will, but having said, there will still be a judgment because when you use machine learning, it become, I find that a lot of time it becomes a compliance exercise. So mm. there will still be judgment. The industry is still dealing when they use automation with false positive. Okay, false positive is a big problem in financial crime when they use technology. 
And so how do you deal with false positives is a big problem. And a lot of people are using machine learning to say that they will reduce the false positive rate. I've not come across one that totally reduced the false positive rate. Can organization actually leverage on technologies to tackle financial crime and anti-money laundering? For example, people talk about the Know Your Customer or the KYC. Yes. I think we could use things like biometric, fingerprint with smartphones, you know, all these kind of new and sassy tech. But do you think that they can do that? I think they can do that, but I don't think that hu- human intervention will still be removed. There will be element of judgment involved, and I think that it's very difficult. And maybe you will differ from me since you are technologists. I still feel that there's element of judgment that is very difficult to build. And a lot of judgment, we can say, is based on history as a result of machine learning. Can learn. But actually, there's also a lot of judgment that's not based on history, based on guts. Okay, that's where machine learning can come up with. But I think that machine automation technology has a big role to play. Are they totally integrated in financial crime? Not at all. In fact, I think that there is also a commonality between financial crime and also cyber. Mm. I don't think they have merged together at all. Mm. And also a lot of things that operationally, a lot of things that they've done operationally, you need to check your customer, but this is something that you need to do administratively as well. Mm. And there is not enough integration of the system across the board. So that's one. But having said that, I still very strongly believe that human judgment will still be involved. I mean, as a digital leader myself, we're now hitting a physical business unit where when I think about the compliance with remittances, for example, the know your customer effect, I actually come to appreciate that. I mean, you can automate things, but I think even with putting the smart algorithm, it's not good enough to actually catch some of the nuances that criminals can actually bypass yes. your system itself. I think that appreciation is not taken up by... Maybe I'm worried. To be fair, I'm worried is that if we think a system can replace us for a lot of things, it becomes a compliance exercise rather than a risk. Yeah. Risk is not only about history, it's also a judgment. And judgment is also about future. And I think judgment is not ready in machine learning. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> and so human, I like to think that human is still useful yeah. in the next 10 years, yeah. at least before I retire. Yeah. I mean, are there any interesting cases you can talk about how Asian companies actually tackle cybersecurity? I think the other thing that I think Asian companies, some of the things that Asian companies do well, to be fair, is that with compliance, okay? Compliance has a role to play. But I always believe that compliance, you cannot do it on a year-in, year-out basis. Every few years, you need to change your methodology. You need to give an element of freshness. If not, it becomes a very rudimentary work and become boring. Asian are extremely good at that. And, and also at the same time is that I also think that Asian are normally quite good at following a set of process. And they don't use judgment that much, which is a good thing sometimes. But having said that, if we and, and I think in, in, in Western world, people use more judgment than, than here. Having said that, there's also pros and cons in both directions. So my penultimate question, what do you see the area of cybersecurity in the next five years, given its importance to CIOs these days? I think that increasingly there will be a much more collaboration between government and private sector. Cybersecurity is a multifaceted where you need both government and private sector to play their part together is a partnership and I don't think we've reached there yet it will take a long time and when we talk about private sector we also talk about the small medium camp- uh, company that doesn't have the money 
and doesn't have the capability to deal with that. Secondly, is that I also think that I personally think that we will have enough cybersecurity people. Uh, it's contrary to a lot of report, but the reason why I think so is because everybody is talking about it. Everybody is doing something about it. So I just can't imagine that we don't have enough if everybody is doing something about it. Thirdly, that more importantly, I think that cyber is going to get more and more difficult. The reason is that I call it the balkanization of cybersecurity. Why I say that is that every country is going to look at data, cyber as a political instrument, as a national asset. And once they become a national asset, every country will want to dictate it and control it. As a result, you will have different cybersecurity acts in every single country and not all of them are on the same page and there is no way that they can be on the same page in terms of sovereignty that sort of thing so it will make our life very difficult mm. but it also means a lot of opportunities isn't it opportunity but there again is that the world will be a much divided world that's probably true well Vincent I love this conversation and I am really thankful to have you share with my audience about the nuances or even I think the importance of cybersecurity across whether it's globally or here in Asia. So help my audience, how do they find you? Uh, they can find me at VJLPWC uh, at Twitter. They can also find me in LinkedIn, uh, Vincent J. Lloyd. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and TuneIn. And of course, Google Play only in the US market. And you can always tweet to me at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. So once again, Vincent, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.